Our Old Testament lesson comes from Jeremiah chapter 9. As we read Jeremiah chapter 9, I want to remind you that Jeremiah is speaking to God's people. He's speaking to the church when he says this. It's perhaps not accidental that Paul will quote Jeremiah 9 near the beginning of 1 Corinthians, a letter to a thoroughly messed up church. Jeremiah is talking about how Israel has utterly failed to draw near to God because God's purpose in the whole of the scriptures is to bring a people near to himself. So hear the word of the Lord from Jeremiah 9. We'll start in chapter 8, verse 18 for the the context. Jeremiah 8, starting in verse 18. My joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick within me. Behold, the cry of the daughter of my people from the length and breadth of the land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images and with their foreign idols? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. I mourn and dismay has taken hold on me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has the health of the daughter of my people not been restored? Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the desert a traveler's lodging place, that I might leave my people and go away from them. For they are all adulterers, a company of treacherous men. They bend their tongue like a bow, Falsehood and not truth has grown strong in the land, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. Let everyone beware of his neighbor, and put no trust in any brother, for every brother is a deceiver, and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor, and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves, committing iniquity. Heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit, they refuse to know me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will refine them and test them. For what else can I do because of my people? Their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully. With his mouth, each speaks peace to his neighbor. But in his heart, he plans an ambush for him. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? I will take up weeping and wailing for the mountains and a lamentation for the pastures of the wilderness because they are laid waste so that no one passes through and the lowing of cattle is not heard. Both the birds of the air and the beasts have fled and are gone. I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a lair of jackals, and I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. Who is the man so wise that he can understand this? To whom has the mouth of the Lord spoken that he may declare it? Why is the land ruined and laid waste like a wilderness so that no one passes through? And the Lord says, Because they have forsaken my law that I set before them and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it, but have stubbornly followed their own hearts and have gone after the Baals as their fathers taught them, Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed this people with bitter food and give them poisonous water to drink. I will scatter them among the nations whom neither they nor their fathers have known, and I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, 
Consider and call for the mourning women to come. Send for the skillful women to come. Let them make haste and raise a wailing over us, that our eyes may run down with tears and our eyelids flow with water. For a sound of wailing is heard from Zion. How we are ruined! We are utterly shamed because we have left the land, because they have cast down our dwellings. Hear, O women, the word of the Lord, and let your ear receive the word of his mouth. Teach your daughters a lament, and each to her neighbor a dirge. For death has come up into our windows. It has entered our palaces, cutting off the children from the streets and the young men from the squares. Speak, thus declares the Lord. The dead bodies of men shall fall like dung upon the open field, like sheaves after the reaper, and none shall gather them. Thus says the Lord. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh, Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert who cut the corners of their hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. This is the word of the Lord. All the wisdom in the world cannot bring you near God. All the strength in the world cannot overcome death. All the wealth in the world cannot buy life. What is worth boasting in? Only this, that he knows me, that I am Yahweh, who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. As we go through the book of Colossians, I've I've been reading a lot from the prophets because I'm convinced that Paul was keenly aware of the prophetic critique of Israel. We'll be talking about the the circumcision of Christ. It, It would have been easy to read Genesis 17 and talk about what circumcision was supposed to be. But when Paul is writing to the Colossians, everyone knows that things are not the way they're supposed to be. Circumcision has failed. It was supposed to distinguish Israel from the nations. The seed of Abraham was to be separate, holy, set apart. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. That's where Genesis 17 starts. Paul says in Romans 4 that Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was uncircumcised. A sign points to something else. The sign of circumcision pointed to the righteousness that Abraham had by faith. A seal confirms the authenticity of something. Circumcision functioned as a seal, depicting and confirming the righteousness that Abraham had by faith. And so Abraham's descendants were marked with the same sign and seal. But Jeremiah says that he can't tell the difference between an Egyptian and an Israelite. Circumcision by itself doesn't change the heart. All the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. 
This is why we don't try to draw a straight line from circumcision to baptism. You can sort of see a connection between them if you draw a straight line. But that's not Paul's point. Because what's missing when you draw the straight line between circumcision and baptism is the circumcision of Christ. Our New Testament lesson comes from Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Hear now the word of our God. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever lost hope? Reached a point when you just don't feel like things will ever change. It's just, this is the way it is and nothing's ever going to change. I think if you've lived longer than a few years, you've probably reached that point at one point or another, perhaps many times. When you read the prophets, like, like Jeremiah, or like the book of Judges as we're seeing Sunday evening, you start to realize there were whole centuries where it looked like nothing would ever change. And then you read Paul. And Paul doesn't seem to think like that. Paul has this resounding hope. What is Paul's hope? Let's just remember together what Paul has said so far about hope in Colossians. In chapter 1, verse 5, Paul referred to the hope laid up for you in heaven which you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. And then in chapter 1, verse 23, Paul urges you to continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. But what is the hope that you have heard? 
Well, in chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says that to the saints, to his holy people, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And as we saw last time, a a mystery is not something that is hard to understand. A mystery in the scriptures is something that was once not revealed, but now has been revealed. So a mystery is, this is where the mystery that Paul declares here, is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is the thing that God has now clearly revealed. So what was once a mystery, what was once sort of a secret that was not understood, now has been made clear. So the mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So what is your hope? Christ. And not just that Jesus is coming back someday, as though he had left you here to muddle around until he gets back. No, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Not just that someday Christ will be in me, but Christ in you now. And that is your hope. There are many other hopes that compete with this. The Colossians were were dealing with a sort of Jewish mysticism, which said that true wisdom and knowledge could only be had through the worship of angels. We'll we'll see that next time. And observance of special days, sort of the strange blending of sort of some aspects of Greek and Hebrew and maybe even Persian thought that were getting woven together in those days. And, And some of the Colossians appear to have been lured away or beaten down by this false teaching. And so Paul emphasizes that the full assurance of understanding cannot be had apart from Christ. In fact, this is why Paul had said, as we saw last time in chapter 1, 24 verse, through 2, 5, that Paul's own ministry, and indeed that of all pastors, is a necessary part of Christ's sufferings because Jesus has united the people to himself and so we, it's not just that we all generally suffer with Christ, but Paul even says that his, his own sufferings, he says in chapter 1, verse 24, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. This is where Paul fills up in his own flesh what's lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Obviously, Christ's sufferings are lacking nothing in their atoning power. What's lacking is the continued participation in, his people continue participating in him. It's what Paul himself had realized on the road to Damascus when, when he heard Jesus say, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. That when Jesus' people are persecuted, Jesus himself is persecuted. That that's where Paul says, I am filling up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ, which is, Christ's own suffering. It's not, that, it's not that Paul is suffering so Jesus doesn't have to. No, no, no. Jesus suffers with his people. That's what he said. I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. And he says, ah, I re- and I rejoice in this. And Paul is claiming that this is, this is where our participation in Christ's sufferings, and his, indeed his own apostolic teaching, is the place where we can find the truth about this, the mystery of Christ. And the false teachers should be easy to spot 
because they will teach something other than what Paul has proclaimed. So like he says in verses 6 and 7, As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. As you've received Christ Jesus, as you have received the apostolic teaching, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. The only way to grow and remain steadfast in Christ is to hold fast to what the apostles taught. And so Paul is telling the Colossians, make sure that you continue to listen only to those who preach what the apostles preach. Don't listen to the newfangled preachers who would lead you astray. And, and then Paul reminds them of who they are in Christ. So he's, we, as we've seen in, in chapter 1, he's really, he had really focused on who is Christ and what has Christ done. Now he's turning to who are you in Christ? Not who were you before Christ, but who are you in Christ? And so in verse 8, he, he warns them against being taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions, the elemental spirits of the world. Uh, this, this phrase, elemental spirits, or the stoicheia of the world, refers to spiritual powers. Paul says, there, yeah, sure, there are lots of other basic worldviews out there, but they're all effectively rooted in, in demonic teaching. You might think that modern thought is different. Oh, modern thought is scientific. It's based on reason alone. But if you think about it, what is the whole idea that somehow we can reason our way to God apart from any divine revelation or reason ourselves to understanding the world? I mean, it's actually precisely the same sorts of things that you see at the Tower of Babel. It's the same sorts of things that you see all throughout the ancient world. You find it in Plato. You find it. It's, if we leave the word demon out of it, the word Paul uses is stoicheia, the basic principles or elemental spirits. It's actually very connected to the idea of the principalities and powers, the rulers and authorities that he talks about later in the chapter. So don't think of demons in the popular sense of the term. Modern science is very interested in stoicheia, the basic principles of the world. Even atheist scientists think that they are getting in touch with the way things really are when they do science. And that's what Paul is talking about. Don't think for a moment that you could understand the way things really are without Christ. He is, after all, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. All things were made by Him and for Him. He holds all things together by the word of His power. And now, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Uh, Paul understands what he's engaging with. There are these people who talk about stoicheia, the basic principles, elemental spirits, uh, would also talk about the fullness, the pleroma. And, and, and what Paul's saying is, no, 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 the whole fullness of deity isn't found in the stoicheia. It isn't found in the basic elemental spirits and principles. No, 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 no. The whole fullness, the fullness of deity is found bodily in Jesus Christ because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God joined himself to our humanity. You want to see 
You want to see the, the, the mysteries. You want to see the secret. God has revealed the mystery in Jesus Christ. God has revealed the mystery in His beloved Son who joined Himself to our humanity. And you have been filled in Him. Even as the whole fullness of deity dwelt bodily in Jesus, you have been filled in Him. Who is the head of all rule and authority? He is the head of the stoicheia, the elemental spirits. He's their maker and ruler. And you have been filled in Him. Now, how have you been filled? How do you, how do you get connected to, to Jesus? Well, this is what Paul says in verses 11 and following. In Him, also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You were circumcised. Not with a physical circumcision. This is a circumcision made without hands. As we saw earlier, circumcision was a sign and seal of the covenant with Abraham. And Paul says that, that Christ was cut off in his death. You think of the sign of circumcision was the cutting off, the snipping off of the foreskin. Well, Christ was snipped off, cut off in his death. Circumcision in the Old Testament pointed forward to the reality of Christ's death. And so when you think about how Old Testament Israelites, when, when, when you circumcise the baby boy, that is, it was a picture of, of the circumcision of Christ, of the cutting off of Christ, his own crucifixion. Now, both they're, they're you know also when you when he says that that Paul talks about how the putting off of the flesh I mean this is circumcision is very literally a putting off of the flesh the foreskin literally snipped off but also they are we are united with Christ we are raised with him through faith now why do we not practice circumcision anymore the simple reason is Jesus Christ is Israel. He is the seed of Abraham. He is the firstborn son. And so his death was the circumcision. And once Jesus was circumcised, once he was cut off, that is the fulfillment of what circumcision was pointing to. And Jesus Christ was circumcised for us. On the cross, he was cut off for us. Darkness fell upon him so that the new light of a new day might dawn upon us. So how do we receive this circumcision of Christ? Well, Paul says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So Paul thinks of your baptism as the means by which you have been joined to the life of Christ. There was the union of God and man in the incarnation. That's where all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. But then you are filled in Him. How? Well, Paul says, through your circumcision. But your circumcision is a circumcision made without hands. Your circumcision is called baptism. So notice, Paul is connecting circumcision and baptism, but not with a straight line. Paul's line goes through the cross. Paul's line goes through the circumcision of Christ when he was snipped off for us. Just as Christ was 
snipped off in his death. So now in our baptism, we were buried together with him. Now, you sometimes will hear Baptists saying, oh, well, that means, you know, burial, that means immersion. That's actually kind of a very Western European way of thinking about burial. Because when we bury somebody, we dig a a hole in the ground, we put them down there, we cover them with dirt. That's, That's, you know, they're immersed in dirt. In the ancient Near East, that's not usually how you bury people. In the ancient Near East, you have a cave. I mean, think of Jesus' own burial. There's a, there's, there's a cave, there's a rock chamber, where Jesus is inserted into, but he's not covered with anything besides a cloth. He's not immersed at all. He's inserted into, a, into the tomb. And that's the picture that Paul's using here. We have been buried with Christ in baptism. We have been inserted into Christ's own death and resurrection. Our old man is is buried with Christ, is inserted into Christ. But just like Christ, we don't stay dead. Paul also says that in baptism we are raised with him through faith. In baptism, we, we don't trust in the water, and the water can't save us. In baptism, we don't trust in ourselves, our experience can't save us. In baptism, we trust in the powerful working of God, for the same God who raised Jesus from the dead also promises to raise us to newness of life in Him. Notice what Paul says in verse 13, And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made alive together with Him, having forgiven you all your trespasses. You were a sinner. You were dead in your sins. And as Paul puts it, in the uncircumcision of your flesh. This is where whether you you were physically circumcised or not, your flesh was uncircumcised. You were unclean. You needed that cleansing of the blood of the Lamb. The, The flesh was the controlling principle of your life. You walked in wickedness as a slave to sin, as an enemy of God, as Paul said in Colossians 1.21. But now you have been circumcised. Your old life has been snipped off. Your old self has been put to death, crucified with Christ on the cross. This is what our baptism points to. And Paul says that baptism is the circumcision of Christ, where he trims away, he snips away the body of the sins of the flesh. It's not that water does this by itself, but the water of baptism is the outward sign of this new reality. If you have been baptized then this is the reality that God promises to you. You have been crucified with Christ. Your old sinful nature has been washed away. Is that, is that how you think about your baptism? Paul tells you that your baptism is a past event which has present implications. Your baptism, maybe, maybe, you, maybe you were older and you remember it. Maybe you were an infant and don't, don't remember it at all. But whether we felt anything, whether or not it was a dramatic experience, Paul says that in God's eyes, baptism is our being united to Christ in His death and resurrection, that just as He died for our sins and was raised from the dead, so now we have died to sin and have been raised in newness of life. Because baptism isn't just a matter of getting wet. In the New Testament, baptism involves both the outward sign of water and the inward reality of the working of the Holy Spirit. Our baptism unites us 
to Christ and His church, and we are to look at our baptism as a reminder of what we have become in Christ. If you have been baptized, then you have the promise that you have been made alive and that your sins have been forgiven. But then notice how you receive that promise. Verse 12, you are raised with Him through faith. Simply getting wet is not sufficient. All the blessings which Christ offers to us in baptism can only be received by faith. We must believe in the working of God, that He will do what He has promised. We must trust in His saving grace, that just as He raised Christ from the dead, so also He will finish the work that He has begun in us. Are there times when you feel like giving up? Are there times when you're bombarded with temptation, your, your temper is flaring, your, your kids are making a mess, your, your spouse is being insensitive, your work is overwhelming, you just want to get out of there? Are there times when, when you feel like sin is too powerful? That you can't fight against it? It's just too strong? In those times, remember your baptism. Remember how you have been joined to the life of God. Martin Luther, when he was tempted by sin, would often say, Satan, you have no power over me. I've been baptized, so I belong to Jesus. Your baptism is a concrete reminder that you have died to sin. Your baptism is God's way of reminding you, showing you, that He has washed away your sin, that He has defeated your enemies. Indeed, this is where Paul goes in verses 13 to 15. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Paul's still talking about this circumcision of Christ, which we have received in baptism. And he says that that God has made you alive in Christ and forgiven all of your sins. And, And there are two parts to this. He has wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, verse 14, and he has disarmed the principalities and powers, verse 15. So, so listen, to, he's made us alive with him, having forgiven our trespasses. How? Verse 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now, what was nailed to the cross? The Romans had a practice of of placing a notice on each cross declaring the crime for which the person was being crucified. Well, what had Pilate nailed the cross? This is the king of the Jews. So what's that got to do with what Paul's saying? By canceling the record of death, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Well, what had Pilate done? Pilate had declared Jesus to be the king of the Jews, which (laughs) he was. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, he paid the record of our debt. Think back to Jeremiah 9 and the whole problem of the Old Testament. Israel has forsaken my law that I set before them and have not obeyed my voice. That record of debt stood against Israel. And it's not as though the Gentiles have done any better. Christ, in his sacrifice on the cross, fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. He was the one who did steadfast love, righteousness, and justice. He fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. And since he was perfectly obedient, now his righteousness is imputed to us. God considers us righteous because he looks at us through the death of his Son. 
Which means that the law can no longer condemn us. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When Christ is nailed to the cross, the, the record of debt is paid. But not only has Christ removed the curse of the law, he has also disarmed the principalities and powers. This again is the king of the Jews at work. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Remember back in verse 10, we learned that we are complete in Christ, we are, we have, who is the head of all principality and power. The, the principalities and powers, the rulers and authorities were two names which Jews gave to various orders of angels. And as we're seeing, the Colossians were facing a heresy that was trying to get them to worship angels. They're emphasizing spiritual experience over the content of the gospel. Principalities and powers, rulers and authorities were angelic orders which supposedly controlled our daily lives. And Paul here insists that these principalities and powers are overthrown by the cross. In one sense, we all know the story of the death of Christ. What was going on behind the scenes? Well, ever since the fall, Satan had usurped the authority which Adam was supposed to wield. That's why Satan is called the prince of this world by Jesus. It's not that he was the rightful ruler, but he was a usurper. He had taken the dominion, the authority that Adam was supposed to have. Sinful people through the encouragement of Satan and his minions, had established all sorts of idols, all sorts of false gods to worship. Before Christ came, God's authority on earth was sharply contested. Adam was supposed to be the vice chairant. He was supposed to be the ruler who ruled over all things for the glory of God and the good of man. But now everything has been turned to chaos. The devil had established his kingdom on earth. And, and David and his descendants were called to reestablish the kingdom of God, but we know that story. So God sent his son to reestablish the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus was doing on the cross. Jesus was destroying the power of the devil, and for that matter, all of the idols who had ever reigned in human hearts, and was making a mockery of them, a public spectacle of them in the cross. Now, it's an odd way of doing it. If you're, if you're trying to think of, okay, how am I going to make a public spectacle of the powers? I know. I'll get hung up on the cross and made a public spectacle of. Because where's the public spectacle from an earthly standpoint? It's Jesus. And yet Paul says, ah, <laughs> no, 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 you're missing the point. The principalities and powers, the rulers and authorities, this was the spectacle of the cross. Because while they thought they were winning, they were actually losing. Because Jesus triumphed over the principalities and powers. Remember, what, we see, what we're seeing in the book of Judges, what we keep seeing as we read to the prophets in the Colossians series, all through the Old Testament, sure, God continues to save his people, and thanks be to God for that. But, how far does the gospel get? You get these occasional, you know, oh, there's, there's Naaman, and there's, there's, there's Rahab, and there's, there's these 
you hear the little glimmers of the gospel getting to the Gentiles. But quite frankly, the gospel wasn't getting very far in Israel, much less the Gentiles. But what happens after Pentecost? When the Spirit is poured out upon the church, the gospel goes forth to the ends of the earth, and you see thousands of people converted in a day, millions upon millions, now we're at billions, as the gospel has gone forth to all the earth. Jesus Christ has made a spectacle of the principalities and powers as he trampled the serpent underfoot. Sure, if, if Christ had come with glorious hosts of heaven, he certainly could have destroyed Satan's power that way. But he would have had to destroy all of humanity along with the devil. The only way to destroy Satan without destroying humanity was to undo the curse, was to remove the handwriting of requirements which was against us. And so in redeeming his people, Jesus Christ has destroyed the power of Satan and made a public spectacle of the principalities and powers on the cross. And you have been claimed by Christ as his own. Through the circumcision of Christ, through baptism, where he snipped away your old life and gave you new life, gave you the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. You once were a slave to sin. You were a rebel against God. But now you are in Christ. His life has become yours. You are clothed with his righteousness and filled with his spirit so that you are no longer who you once were. You see, this is what our baptism points us to. And this is, this is why sin is now utterly inconsistent with the Christian life. I mean, we ought to hate our sin, be disgusted by our sin, and seek any way to rid ourselves of the things that, hate, that, that God hates. We are no longer sinners. We are no longer who we once were. But Christ has not simply redeemed us so that we might sin less often. He has redeemed us so that we might be set free from sin. And that's what he begins in this life. And yeah, it's a whole life process. It's not, no one in this life attains the, the, the end at the beginning. There's, there's a reason why there's so much in the, in the Christian message that focuses on the end, the goal, the hope. Because that's where we're going. We're going to what we have now been made partakers of. Jesus has now taken hold of us so that we might walk in him in newness of life. And in your baptism, he has promised you that he will give you new life, the forgiveness of sins, and that he will help you and strengthen you as you believe his promises and walk before him. So let us pray. Oh Lord, have mercy on us because we are forgetful and we are weak and frail and we forget these things and we don't remember your great mercy to us in Jesus. So help us by your Holy Spirit to believe your promises that we might turn away from our old ways and live in newness of life as those who have been made new, those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Help us, we pray, and strengthen us by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.